Our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you the praise and thanks of our hearts. For you have made us your own and have rescued our lives. We pray now that you would fill us with your spirit to understand your word, but more than understand, to live well with you as our Lord. And we ask it for your glory. Amen. Now, you may have noticed, uh, if you're a reader of the City Morning Herald, uh, an upswing in articles recently about what is called the intelligent design movement. Uh, Intelligent design is a theory about the nature of the world we live in, arguing that there are specific features about this world which indicate that the overwhelming likelihood is that it is the product of intelligent design and therefore an intelligent designer and not the product of blind forces such as natural selection and survival of the fittest. Now, I don't think I have the gift of prophecy, but I wrote this yesterday, and guess what appeared in the Sitting Morning Herald on the right-hand side of the opinion page this very day? Yes! An article about the Iraq War. No! <laughs> An article about intelligent design. What's really interesting about this growing collection of mathematicians, biochemists, and biologists is that it is claimed to be a theory of science rather than a religious theory intelligent design. It's different, therefore, from old-school creationism. Creationism uh, more simply agrees with many scientists that the record of Genesis contradicts the theory of evolution and says, well, that's just too bad for evolution. The Bible is our authority on religious grounds and if a scientific theory gets in the way of that, well, scientific theories have been wrong before, they'll be wrong again, the Bible knows best. That's creationism, but intelligent design is different. It is uh, a claim to be a scientific theory and that makes it harder to deal with. It can't simply be written off as a bunch of religious nutters ranting and raving if it's treated fairly. But of course, the secular press in general and the Sydney Morning Herald in particular rarely treats Christian things fairly and lo and behold, did this article this morning? No way, it was classic. I thought, this is fantastic. Here's a guy who just says what intelligent design is in broad overview and then writes it off without any explanation whatsoever. I think there's a reason for that. I don't think that's any shock or surprise at all. You see, fair treatment is much less likely when what is at stake is not just a mildly interesting scientific squabble but an issue of the highest ideological significance. You see, the fact is that if the universe is a creation rather than just nature, and I think as Christians we should not use the word nature, we should use the word creation. If the universe is a creation, that is, the creation of a creator, then that changes everything. It means that all things and all people are under fundamental and objective obligations, whether they know it or like it or not. But all things and all people stand in a fundamental and objective relationship to this one who is their creator. Everyone is in that relationship with that creator. And that all people have, and all things have fundamental and objective duties towards the rest of their fellow creatures. And obligations, relationships and duties, these are terrifying thoughts, terrifying categories in a postmodern scientific world. And so any suggestion of a creator is resisted with the most vicious 
and unscientific ideological prejudice. Read the, read the article today. More and more reporting on intelligent design simply slagging off at how silly it is assuming it's wrong by definition if it posits a creator without really even engaging with it. Uh, in another parallel scientific squabble uh, I found it really interesting to learn that it was atheist scientists who most vehemently resisted the astronomical discoveries in the early 20th century that led to the development of the Big Bang Theory. It was atheist scholars who most vehemently resisted these discoveries precisely because they knew that the logic ran unstoppably unstoppably from the universe having a beginning an absolute beginning in space and time in the Big Bang to the universe having a cause and therefore the conclusion that this cause was strictly immaterial immensely powerful eternal and personal since that's the only kind of cause apart from the universe itself a personal cause and that's starting to sound an awful lot like God well the second half of Colossians chapter 1 speaks into this ideological conflict in the clearest and grandest terms in these few paragraphs the Apostle Paul lays out the astonishing truth not only that there is a creator but that we are his, and, and that we are his creatures with all that that implies about our obligations and our relationships and our duties but even more than that that this creator is also and wonderfully our redeemer who in the fullness of God's power and authority has carved out for himself a kingdom a new creation which is the fulfilment and restoration of the original creation and that this has all taken place in time in history through the blood of a Roman cross Paul says this redemption has enveloped in its hopes in its hopes the readers of this letter and this letter comes with the authority of its authorised servant and so the point of all this in the second half of Colossians chapter 1 is the same as Paul's point throughout Colossians don't shift from this hope don't shift from Christ don't wander off into something that promises life but delivers death as you received Christ Jesus the Lord you've begun in that way so continue in him rooted down and built up and established steadfast always only eternally in him well over the next few minutes let's go for this wonderful journey then into the mind of God if you hear a couple of weeks ago it seems like a long time now doesn't it but only two weeks ago that we looked at the first half of this chapter Colossians chapter 1 I began by reminding the Colossians how they'd received Christ Jesus the Lord they'd learned of the hope of the gospel from Epaphras a pretty bloke all around good guy a beloved fellow servant of the Apostle Paul and from that hope that they learned of from Epaphras they have seen love and faith produced in them the Apostle prays that they would grow and overflow with growth in the marks of this Lordship of Christ that they would have a knowledge of God's will and purpose for the universe deeply enriched intellectual life that they would have a fruitful life of good works 
rather than a bland and barren life of self-interested or self-comforting works. That God would fill them with power, power especially to endure difficult circumstances and to be patient with difficult people. And finally, he prays that they would overflow with thanksgiving to God who has made all this possible. In a sense, it's the thanksgiving which serves as a bridge between the first half of Colossians chapter 1 and the second half of Colossians chapter 1 because as he writes about who this Lord is what he's done the message is who would possibly want to move away from this Lord the opposite of moving away you see is moving towards moving towards Jesus in thanksgiving and why not why would you not give thanks to this one who has enabled verse 12b of chapter 1 Colossians chapter 1 verse 12b who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light he's rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins now I don't know if you were there on Sunday night I was there uh, in front of the TV watching the game uh, the festival of the boot part 2 and um, <laughs> is that not familiar to you festival of the boot Roy and HG anyway part 2 the AFL was last week and, uh, and okay so there's this game which has a ball it's a football kind of not spherical and they pass it and score tries and I was imagining myself as the coach of the West Tigers you see yeah. I live in Ashfield now we have the West Ashfield uh, gambling club I mean the <laughs> club just right next to us <laughs> terrific place uh, what might you say to your team of big goofy blokes that have to go on the field to kind of fire them up what do you say I think I might say something like this we shall fight them on the beaches <laughs> We shall fight them on the landing grounds and all that kind of stuff. Now, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Uh, in case you don't know, that was a very, very excellent imitation <laughs> of Winston Churchill, a uh, leader in England, British Prime Minister during the time of the Second World War. I had a bit of a Winston Churchill thing, uh, you know, pretty impressive leader, really. Uh, Britain was appallingly outnumbered and yet through him and others uh, managed to resist uh, nearly an overwhelming course and the days look dark I mean in hindsight you think oh yeah sure England was going to win no worries but not at the time uh, don't get me wrong he was an appalling drunk as well and so he had his character flaws so let's not be uh, too uh, rose coloured about it all but why would you do that well what you do the reason you sort of speak in those ways is that you, you, you want to evoke a past event and liken it to a present event fighting to preserve freedom and justice in England in the known world a football game <laughs> and you want to draw that parallel in order to evoke the same heroism there now well the apostle does a similar kind of thing in this chapter we can read past these two verses a bit too quickly Whereas, in fact, they are chock-a-block full of echoes of a great past event. The mighty exodus of God's people. The establishment of Israel as Israel. A nation that lived in a land flowing with milk and honey. A nation amongst whom God himself dwelt. Never before had such a thing been done. 
that God had reached out with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. But now Yahweh had done it. He was the God of the whole earth, but he'd chosen Israel to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. What Paul is saying is that an event of comparable divine and spiritual magnitude has taken place. Not Second World World War football game, Exodus, New Exodus. It's taken place. God, you see, has made these Colossians fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Inheritance is an Exodus term. It belongs to the saints. Uh, not St. George, nothing belongs much to St. George this season. <laughs> but the saints are God's people. God's servants in the light. Not in the darkness of oppression as Israel, oh, sorry, as Egypt was for Israel. Moses had prayed that Israel would be God's inheritance. What they inherit is a kingdom. A dominion, the dominion of his beloved son. Son is an Exodus term. First used to speak of Israel. Let my son go, says God. Exodus chapter 4. But now this is the beloved son's kingdom. That's how God describes not Israel but Jesus of Nazareth at his baptism. And this transfer between kingdoms, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, this transfer between kingdoms is a redemption. That's an Exodus word. An even greater redemption, of course, than the original. It's not just a redemption from Egypt, but a redemption from sin itself. Not just by changing geography, but by granting forgiveness. And so why would you not give thanks, you see? Why would you not continue in Christ Jesus the Lord? Why would anyone possibly want to move away from this Jesus, this Son, this Kingdom, this Light? In the case of the Colossians, you can see his point. If this is the great new Exodus compared to that, not unimpressive, but you know, not that impressive either, Exodus, why would the Colossians want to go backwards from Jesus to become Jews? to leave their new exodus and trade it in for an old exodus. Now we saw, as we looked at this last time, I suspect it's hardly tempting for you to become a Jew. Uh, it's not the issue that's challenging you spiritually at the moment. We talked about what you might call positive alternatives to Christ. Uh, a further spiritual experience. And in particular, the way that our culture is obsessed by its ever higher highs, given the kind of blandness of the materialistic world we live in, we're ever searching for a new spiritual experience, a, a, a deeper high, an even greater dance party, an even more long-lasting kind of buzz, because we're so bored by our numbed-out world. And I think as Christians we can take that on and look for, if you like, positive alternatives to Christ. But there are also negative alternatives to Christ. <coughs> I suspect, frankly, these are far more common for us Christians. There is something terribly attractive about darkness to us. The kingdom of darkness. Even though we belong to the kingdom of light. The darkness of sin. Establishing our own little kingdoms. Kingdoms of selfishness where you see I get to do my thing my way 
And in particular, I don't have to worry about the impact that I have on others. I just say what I want. And too bad if other people are upset or hurt or damaged by it. I get to do what I want. And who cares if others don't like that? Kingdoms of immorality, where I just about managed to convince myself that sex doesn't mean anything. It's just a physical interaction after all, isn't it? And so serial sexual partners make sense. It's suppressing that nagging knowledge that you have, that no, it's more than physical. There's a genuine unity, a spiritual unity, that is established in the sex act. Kingdoms have the financial independence that I indulge in the things that money can buy and since there's always something new for my money to buy I'll always need more money. So I might give away a couple of dollars for the salvos just when they drop around maybe even be very generous. Ten dollars. Hmm, that's terrific. But not the thousands and thousands of dollars that I don't actually need. It just doesn't make sense to give that money away because there's always more to spend on me. These, I think, are some of the temptations, some of the negative alternatives to Christ that nag at our souls and promise us life and fulfilment, bit by bit. And here what the Apostle is saying, he's saying there is only one kingdom of light. It's in Jesus. Darkness will destroy you. It will. Sin looks terrific. Otherwise, why would we be tempted? And some of the people say, well, it just felt so good. Well, of course it felt good. That's what sin's supposed to feel like, at least temporarily. No, there is only one kingdom of light. And Paul says, stay in it. Stay in it. Be alert to your temptations. Know your points of vulnerability. It might be that you're entirely immune to materialistic temptations. You've just grown up knowing that generosity of heart is just part and parcel of the fabric of the way reality is according to God and grace. So that's not an issue for you. But, but your use of your tongue, you, can, you know that you can be vicious and cutting and biting and so you just need to be aware of your temptation to know at what point your soul is being tugged in these negative directions away from Christ. One for me is a desire for revenge. Uh, I find it quite easy to summon up anger when I'm being wronged. I've got a situation at the moment where I have a neighbour. At uh, the church where I serve, we put up a sign and it's a beautiful sign. I designed it myself, blah, blah, blah. It replaced an old sign. There's an old sign there with this sign is actually smaller than the old sign. Uh, it's got a changeable section in it so I can write little messages up. I've got my next message in my mind. Uh, but the neighbour across the road has complained to the council. And so now we've got grief. Letters from the council demand to take it down right within 14 days or you'll be taken off to jail forever or something. You know what I mean? And I've got revenge in my heart. I'm thinking, what's the nastiest way I can get back at this nosy, interfering something? Neighbour. <laughs> well, no, what should I do to my neighbour? Jesus fairly straightforward about what you do to your neighbour. Don't really give it to them. No. <laughs> love her so instead of saying right you don't like our property you can keep off our property I mean that's a great way to treat someone about church isn't it don't come onto the church property whatever you do 
No, love my neighbour. Love my neighbour. Serve her. Overcome evil. I don't think she's done anything particularly evil. But overcome this with good. Invite her in. Get along. Stand under the side. Spit at her perhaps or something. Just do what she, you know, what she likes. Think, what is it to be like now? What will it be for you to live in a kingdom of light this afternoon? Um, from this trivial, make sure you pay your bus fare properly or your train fare on the way home. That's light. There's darkness, which is lie and steal. There's a kingdom of light. It belongs to Jesus. Stay there. Now this kingdom that's Jesus as a place of new exodus is impressive enough. But Paul has an even more impressive point to make. You think, wow, new exodus. Why would you go anywhere other than this new exodus? That's fantastic. Well, Paul's got something even grander to say to us this afternoon. What has been done in Christ is not just a new exodus. It's nothing less than a new creation. There's the exodus story. That's fantastic. He says, check out this Genesis story. It's even more fantastic. Listen now, he puts it verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. This Son, who is the King in the Kingdom of Light, is no less than the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now suddenly the, the story that Paul is telling, the map that he's drawing for us, just got bigger, didn't it? Uh, the image of God is a familiar term. It's a creation term. It's a term for those who exercise God's authority on God's behalf, having dominion over God's world to see it fulfilled in God's love. Humanity was created in this image. It's been horribly marred and defaced and scarred and ruined. But now it is clearly seen again. And so now we clearly see who God is in this one, this Son who is the image, the visible representation of the invisible God. You want to know what God's like? Jesus is what God is like. He is described as the firstborn of all creation. Now it's important to get this right. What that might mean, possibly, is that Jesus is the highest element within creation. Although, as we'll see, that the next sentence and the one after that and the one after that rule that out entirely. Better is the sense that the firstborn uh, is the one who is the inheritor of all creation. Back in the good old days, the very good, very old days, they didn't let all the children inherit the property of the uh, estate it's important to keep the estate together because then it could maintain the wealth of the family and keep being income producing and so all the family inheritance went to firstborns hands up any firstborns here yes you know what I'm talking about don't you yes yes those were good days the firstborn it didn't mean you were the firstborn of your parents estate didn't mean you were the highest bit of their estate 
I didn't mean you were an element of it. There's the house, there's the car, and there's the kid. <laughs> it just meant that you were the one who inherited it all. You had rights of authority over it all. And that's, I think, clearly what it's uh, spoken of Jesus here. His grace, of course, is such that he shares this inheritance. He inherited, as uh, Paul puts it in verse 12, in order that he may share that inheritance with us. Now, just in case you don't uh, get quite where the sun stands uh, in relation to the creator-creature divide, Paul is entirely explicit. He goes on and says, In him all things were created. All things. Just in case you didn't get all things, he says, all things in heaven and on earth. That's kind of up and down. All things to my left, all things to my right. All things bigger than one kilo, all things under one kilo. Right? It's just kind of a way of saying, really, truly, really, I mean, all things. If there's a thing, it was created in Jesus. Things that are visible and things that are invisible. Are there any other kinds of things other than visible and invisible things? No. <laughs> all things. And then he further defines the heavenly and invisible things. Thrones, dominions, rulers, powers. Whatever there is that has been created, I mean, whatever it is that you study, literature, culture, rocks, <laughs> balance sheets, more the pity. <laughs> I mean, whatever it is that there is to be known and studied and understood in this world, whatever creation, whether it's a direct creation uh, of a physical material or a human creation, it is all created in Him, in Christ. Everything apart from God, all things were created through him and therefore for him. Did you notice that? You see the immense power of this idea, of this ideology. What you have here is an ideology. A frame of mind, a world view is on, on uh, offer for us here. You can see why atheists would want to rubbish even the very possibility of a creator, an intelligent designer, if we're created through Christ, then the Apostle says we're also created for Christ. We not only have fundamental and objective obligations, relationships and duties as creatures of a Creator, we also have a fundamental and objective purpose or destiny to live for the praise of His glory as the Apostle puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, the sort of sister letter to Colossians. To live for Christ. That's what this university exists for. It was created through him. I mean, it had a bit of, a few secondary causes, you know, the old stone mason and all that kind of stuff. But it was created through Christ and it was created for Christ, this university. Oriented in every aspect of its life and you and I oriented in every aspect of our lives for him. In fact, even the very strength to obey or disobey, to worship or to become idolaters is given to us by Christ. Not only is he the origin of all things, not only is he the destiny of all things, every moment by moment, day by day, existence of all things is a gift of his grace. All things, you see, the Apostle says, hold together rather than just collapse in dissolution 
in Christ. Beginning and middle. You see the power of this idea, this ideology, the significance of God as creator. Now the point is that this lordship of Christ is always a saving lordship. Not only is this son the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, he's the lord of redemption as well. Verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead. You see the parallel. Creation, new creation. Creation wrenched from its great enemy, death. No explanation is given of where this enemy came from or why it is that what was created now needs redeeming. But it's simply known as we know it immediately from experience. Death is the universal enemy. It doesn't matter whether you die peacefully in your bed at the age of 106 or die ripped to shreds by a shrapnel bomb in a restaurant on a beach age 26. It doesn't matter. There's no good death as far as the Bible is concerned. Death is the enemy, the great enemy, the destroyer of life the interrupter of God's purposes and it is death that Christ has come to deal with. Notice that this work of redemption is possible because of his person of divinity. See how the Apostle puts it in 19 For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This matters a great deal. This matters a great deal. The work of Christ is a function of the person of Christ. Those two things are distinguishable but they can never be separated. You muck up the person of Christ and you will not get the work of Christ. Uh, I was following up some people with an outreach uh, fight at the uh, church at Ashville where I serve and uh, we had some people respond to it and I rang up uh, uh, one of the people uh, who said they'd be interested in doing a course discussing Christianity. Uh, she said, oh, very good to hear from you. Um, would you be interested to do a course discussing Christianity? Yes. I uh, said, I started going to a church. I said, oh, terrific, that's great. What church have you started going to? She said, um, at the Church of um, Jesus uh, Christ of uh, later um, something. I said, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? She said, yes, that's a wonderful, it's a great church. They're very friendly. I said, the Mormons. I said, yes, that's right, the Mormons. What do you do then? There's only one thing that you can do. I took my breath. I tried to find a nice way to say this non-nice thing that I had to say. And I said to her, I know this is very hard for you to hear from me. I'm a complete stranger to you. You've never heard of me before, except as I was shouting out raffle ticket numbers. <laughs> that's not a church that thing it's a pseudo church and it will lead you astray 
because it doesn't teach what Christians teach. It will lead her to hell, won't it? That's right, isn't it? Now, I've no joy in slagging off other people. Uh, but I've less joy than someone being led away from Jesus in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and for someone like the Mormons to say, well, no, he was not all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, that's just wrong. He was a very impressive individual, the firstborn, the greatest part of all creation, a terrifically impressive angel, but not the firstborn over all creation, properly understood, not the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. No, this only works, this passage, this only works because of the person of Jesus. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Nothing of God was not in Jesus. You understand that? Nothing can you say of God that you can't say of Jesus except that he's the Father. Other than saying that Jesus is the Son rather than the Father, everything that can be said of God must be said of Jesus. Or else this fails. Or else this fails. For only the one whom is the, who is the creator, God himself, has the moral and spiritual authority and power to be our redeemer. His work and his person are irretrievably, essentially tied together. And you see it here, it's straightforwardly. Notice not only was creation created through him but also through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things whether on heaven uh, on earth or in heaven by making peace through the blood of the cross now no explanation is given for the mechanism of the cross here what you'd like is a little footnote now by the way how it is that this cross works to reconcile all things things that are past and things that are future and things that are present things that are in Palestine and things that are in China which wasn't even known about then by Palestinians right all things on this little cross, there was, it would have taken out this cross here. That one moment, it's what's called uh, in uh, sort of philosophical language, the scandal of particularity. But that cross, there it is, you could just see it, you could fit it in a photograph. Should be the point where all things were reconciled to God. The scandal of particularity. Paul says, uh, has no footnote saying now how that works is like this at which point you think look I would have bought him some more papyrus <laughs> you know, I'd pay for that on my own money <laughs> he's got a little more to say about it in the next chapter and we'll come back to it next week so there's an incentive come back next week uh, but for now what matters is not how it works but that it works but a monstrous execution should in fact in the purpose and power of God be the reconciliation of the universe. Now notice a couple of very important conclusions that we can draw about the relationship between creation and redemption. These are the great poles of Christian theology which are brought together in specific and immediate relationship with each other. Creation and redemption through Jesus Christ. Creation through Jesus Christ and therefore redemption through Jesus Christ. Firstly, absolutely excluded is the possibility that creation is, by virtue of its createdness, evil. There is no chance of that. Even the very enemies of God in the next chapter, uh, thrones, authorities, powers, dominions, these have become the enemies of God 
misused elements of creation even they were created through Jesus and for Jesus now nothing is evil by virtue of its creativeness and therefore creativeness is not something from which we will escape redemption is not redemption from creation the goal of God's work in your life is not to make you less you to make you less what you created as to make you less human you know that phrase more of him and less of me uh, I know what's being sort of said there I think it's in a song uh, but it's not right it's not more of him and less of me it's more of him and therefore more of me the way I was meant to be me in my particularity as a creature of God that's different from you thank the Lord who wants to of me or you no redemption is always the redemption of creation God is not into saving souls if what we mean by that is what the Greeks meant by that that is having little disembodied souls floating around and even slightly Christianizing by saying we'll be singing hymns to harp music that's not God's work to remove us no God's work is to redeem everything including us he's the God of redemption the redemption of all things hear the point again won't you what's Paul's point in all this why would you ever move away from this Jesus through whom all things were made for whom all things were made through whom all things have been reconciled to God that's the point that Paul goes to next as he places the Colossians themselves on this map and you who were once estranged verse 21 and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven Paul has drawn this marvellous map of God's creative and redeeming work and he says now to these Colossians these unnamed, obscure, historically irrelevant nobodies just like you and I that they have been caught up in this redemption this reconciliation you who were once estranged and hostile in mind doing evil deeds notice their plight and I take it out is described in holistic terms estranged and hostile in mind doing evil deeds both mindset and deeds constitute our problem our dilemma uh, I, I think we often only speak of one side of that deeds and uh, in dealing with our nice relatively pleasant middle class friends and family unless uh, who most of all don't have terribly evil deeds not many murders only a few complaints against unobtrusive signs on neighbouring church properties <laughs> if we don't have any deeds to speak of we think well it's hard to know how to talk to people about their sin isn't it but it's only hard because we haven't got Colossians 1, 15 to 20 well and truly clamped in the place in our mind. If you know Colossians 1, 15 to 20, then Colossians 1, 21 follows automatically, doesn't it? 
estrangement and hostility to God I mean the God who in fact fundamentally and objectively created them who is sustaining them who is the destiny of their lives for whom they were created well of course estrangement and hostility in mind in attitude, in outlook is every bit as bad as evil deeds what's the first commandment that Jesus gave us? to love your neighbour as yourself right? that right? no it, did anyone get that wrong? can I just back <laughs> up now if you got that wrong I, I did that nasty little trick to people who had been going to communion services where they'd had that said for 60 years and they still got it wrong what is the first and greatest commandment the thing which if you get everything else in your life right but get this wrong then you're a failure as a human being what's the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord your God why Colossians 1 15 to 20 have you got the point yes good <laughs> Paul says for these Colossians that is their past they've been redeemed brought to the kingdom of light reconciled from the inside through the fleshly body of Christ in death we'll come back to that phrase next week as we unpack what Paul has to say about the death of Christ then and they will be presented to God holy and blameless and unable to be reproached have you ever been presented to someone I don't know if you've ever had this maybe you're a school officer or something like that or one of five or some, I never won anything in my life actually um, but you know I've been presented occasionally uh, to people and you sort of fuck about don't you do your tire do your eyebrows you just you want to be sort of you know well organised well groomed and a bit, bit blameless and a bit irreproachable well I mean it's bad enough being presented to sort of relative nobodies like your own self you know the artificial of Sydney or some sort of person just some other human being but imagine being presented to God Jesus says Father I present to you the honest mark and uh, God says what does God say? well let's not talk about Fiona <laughs> God says fantastic my holy and blameless and unreproachable daughter son in Christ that's what you have in Christ that's how you'll be presented to God in Christ provided here's the condition provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith that's the condition here now don't panic at the condition I think we can tend to we read this and think oh no Paul is, he's gone he's lost the bottle he's lost the blood he's introduced works my goodness there ought not to be a, well there is a condition John Piper, the American author, calls it a, an unmerited conditional future grace. You might want to write that phrase down and think about it. Unmerited conditional future grace. Some conditions are merits. Earning a salary uh, is meritoriously conditional upon doing your job. You may have been sacked. Right? You didn't do the job properly, so you didn't meritoriously fulfil the condition of getting your salary so you've got the flip fair enough I would too some conditions however are not meritorious uh, it's a condition for breathing that you have a set of lungs uh, you need a set of lungs to breathe 
but it hardly means you deserve to breathe so you stop breathing you can't shout out I've got a set of lungs I deserve to be able to breathe no no it's a non-meritorious condition and Paul says here is a non-meritorious condition that you will be presented to God holy and blameless and irreproachable provided you stay in Christ there's no merit there there's Christ there but you've got to stay there you've got to stay there now Paul goes on and describes his own place on this map as an authorised commission having received a commission from God we're not going to deal with that today here's the point again though what more could you want than this Christ and his kingdom how could you possibly go anywhere and so Paul writes he says at the start of chapter 2 so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge all the riches of assured understanding that's what we have available to us if you will know who this Jesus is your Lord and also he says he writes so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments what those plausible arguments might be we'll look at next week let's pray together our Lord Jesus Christ we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would grant to us such a richness of assured understanding a knowledge of the mystery of God that we may not be deceived but may continue in you and we ask it for your glory Amen